welcome to this special bonus episode of Red Bull's How To Be Superhuman. I'm Rob Pope. We left you back in May with the final episode of Series 1, featuring the incredible Karen Dark. Since then, we as a human race have faced a lot of adversity, and in the world of endurance sport, athletes from across the globe have continued pushing the limits of what's possible. The conversation you're about to hear was recorded live for Red Bull's time-lapse event, an extraordinary virtual race and the world's longest one-day cycling challenge. A challenge? Well, each team and solo rider was testing their physical and mental limits by racing for a whopping 25 hours. Yeah, you heard that right, the longest challenge, because it took place on the weekend the clocks go back, meaning the riders had to push themselves for one more whole hour in the saddle. They went long, which is something my guest certainly knows a lot about, Jenny Graham. Jenny is the fastest female to cycle around the world, a feat she managed in just 124 days. To put that into context, that's 18,000 miles, 16 countries and 15 hours a day on average. And not only that, but it was self-supported, meaning she carried everything on the bike. I'm talking bivy bag, tools, food, clothes, everything. And if she got into trouble, well, that was up to Jenny to get herself out of it. Jenny did an amazing job of inspiring the competitors during Red Bull time-lapse. I'd hope she does the same for you at home. As I mentioned previously, this chat was recorded live, so maybe not quite like the other episodes of How To Be Superhuman. However, please go back and listen to those once you're done with this one. And maybe stick around after, as I've got some exciting news for you. Hi Rob, <laughs> lovely to be here. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Uh, is the weather okay by you? I'm, I'm sort of quite <laughs> glad that people be on the indoor trainers here because it's chucking it down where I am. Yeah, I'm in the north of Scotland, and it's uh, yeah, it's not one, it's not one of our best days this month for sure. <laughs> I was thinking, thinking about all the time lapses. Well, that's yeah, you, you say you're from the north of Scotland. That's that's where you grew up, hey. Mm, yeah, yeah, born and bred. And, and so was was that natural cycling territory? Um, I mean, it's definitely. I think. I, I think there's natural um, adventure territory, you know, in an hour's radius. Yeah. I live in Inverness, the capital of the Highlands, and so within an hour's radius of Inverness, I can be in so many different terrains. I can, you know, ride from my door and get into the rugged sort of west coast mountains, or I can head out east and, you know, go go a long, long way, usually into a headwind, um, and really close to the Cairngorm Mountains. So yeah, it feels like the perfect adventure playground if you can deal with the cold and wet and mitties. <laughs> I think it toughens well, you, you up playground. a bit, though. I bet, yeah. You say playground. Yeah. Were you adventurous as a child? Was this something your parents encouraged or actively discouraged? Oh, definitely. They, they never discouraged anything that I got up to. Um, not until I was about 14, anyway, 15. <laughs> and then. Um, but as a kid, I was, we weren't an out, we weren't a sporty family. Like, you know, we, we weren't going out and um, doing sports as such, but we were always like my mum was from out in the countryside. So sort of grew up playing out in the woods, building dens, building swings, you know, jumping about in rivers. 
And so that adventure side came very naturally to me. But I didn't have a clue about the sporty side of things. You know, I didn't know any cyclists as I grew up. I knew loads and loads of kids that played on bikes and used their bikes to, um, you know, to travel about and get to each other's houses or get into the woods. But it was it was never a sport to me until I was an adult. So that's when you started to get crazy ideas, you know. <laughs> How did you come up with this one? And what did your mum and dad think of that when you mentioned that you might be going on a fairly long jaunt? Oh, it's so funny. I can still picture mum's face like, uh-huh, okay. Because <laughs> I think I was really <laughs> blasé about it, you know. I was just trying to get my head around it. And um, so it wasn't a big, like, sit down, I, I've got, you know, I'm going to do this thing. I just sort of mentioned it in the passing and, you know, on the way through to the kitchen. I just remember mum sort of sitting down on the steps, like, okay then. <laughs> and uh, and I was like, oh, <laughs> that's yeah, nice. that's quite a big deal, isn't it? <laughs> What was the next yeah, step then? How did the training go? Oh, wow, the training. So I guess on the lead up to, to deciding it, it was to deciding whether I was going to go and do it or not, you know, to put it into perspective, I was I was doing, like I was riding long distances for fun. I was competing in some sort of local um, endurance events. And I started realising that actually I'm never going to be the fastest rider, but I can keep on going and going and going. And that seemed to be a real strength of mine. Um, and so when I, I'd, I'd sort of come up with the round the world idea and lots of things were like stars were aligning in my life to make this happen. Um, and so I thought about it first in April and I didn't, like, I couldn't even say it out loud to anyone until about the June. You know, it took me that long to process, like, because I knew as soon as I said it out loud, I'm sure you know exactly what this feeling is. Like, as soon as you say it out loud, something happens. And, you know, it, it's almost like it attaches itself to you. The, the idea grows in you. And, like, the more you say it and the more you speak about it, the more you really want it to happen and you know that you're going to pursue it. And I knew that this was big chat for me. <laughs> Like I'm full of big yeah. chat, but this was really big chat. So, um, uh, yeah. And so then once I did manage to say it out loud and um, I, 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 like the training, like I was working full time. I'm a mum like, of, a, of a grown up son. He was uh, 18, 17 or 18 at the time. And um, yeah, working full time. And so, yeah, training 20 hours a week on top of that. And then, well, you know what it's like. And then you're like, you're organizing the biggest trip of your life and going through, you know, project managing all that. So I look back and I remember thinking, if I survive getting to the start line, then the rest of it's going to be easy because this bit is, is when you're juggling <laughs> everything. Yeah. All I had to do was like I ride my bike. I could forget about adult stuff. Yeah, I love the way you say easy. I hope you're using hefty inverted commas there because, you know, there's there's no training guide online for how to ride your bike around the world. And similarly, there's not a huge pool of knowledge to, to you know, ask mm. people. Now, there are mm. a few people who've done it. Now, did you have any idea how long you wanted to take? Yeah, so I I knew that 144 days that was the time to beat. That I mean, the previous record was controversial, but the, both women, you know, 144 days were important to both their rides. So I was like, right, if I can nail yeah. 124 days, then then um, I'll do that. But I I picked 
plucked a number out of my head really and thought I could probably ride for 180 miles a day and that would take me to 110 <laughs> days so that was that was that was my big plan when I left that I wanted to do it in 110 days and of course I didn't do it in 110 days um I did it in 124 days so it was quite quite a lot longer than I had thought but I think that naivety uh, gets you a long way <laughs> certainly gets you to the I start line that wasn't for a two week that wasn't a two-week beach holiday in the middle, was it? <laughs> yeah, I was so chilled out on that ride. <laughs> <laughs> well, chilled out because you, you didn't really have much, much people to stress you out because you were on your own. Now, mm-hmm. when you decided to do this unsupported, like, what did you do about going to research your kit? Now, there's people we've got today who are putting in a lot of hours in the saddle, and I yeah. know that they're going to want to know about your bike in particular. So tell us a little bit about yeah. your kit and how you went about assembling that. I mean, it was fascinating because I was a mountain biker and um, I, I still try to be a mountain biker, but the road has taken over. Um, but I had my setup dialed for mountain biking and for, you know, touring or, or like racing mountain biking, but take it onto a road bike and the, like everything's different. And then, and then obviously going that much further, I had to think about the aero side of things that, you, that I never thought about on mountain biking. So yeah, it took, it probably took a full nine months to get my kit absolutely dialed. And um, bike wise, I was supported by Shan Cycles for uh, your Scottish brand, steel frame bikes. And it was really, really important that that bike was, you know, really comfortable for me to sit on. Like I say, some days were 15, some days were 18 hours on the bike. And then I'd have to get up and do another another set the next day. So it was dead important that I could get back on that bike. Um, so I went a little bit heavier. And it was also important that I could try and fix my, my own bike or, you know, take it somewhere and get it welded if anything happened to it in transit. So I took a, like, like the bike frame itself with steel and then there was loads of carbon components on it which made it much lighter so it was just yeah it was a beautiful bike the most specialized bit in it was probably the sun hub so I had a dynamo hub and so I could charge all my equipment that was like a full-time job on the road I'm sure you find that as well just keeping your lights on the go you know I had like low like three front lights probably four back lights I had my camera I had my phone my GPS which I needed the data on so I could send it back as evidence Uh, so yeah there's just like all these things that you have to um, keep charged so I, I would have battery packs on rotation and have my, um, yeah. yeah, that was probably my most specialist bit of kit on the bike. And the rest of it was, um, you know, was as Gucci as I could afford. But equally, I needed it to be as robust. So I wasn't always going for the lightest, most expensive thing. I was trying out kit that I knew would, you know, that would take the um, day after day <laughs> grind. <laughs> um, and then yeah, so, so my sleeping kit. As well. Oh, there's so much of it. Do you know how many tri bars there are out there? I was like, had no idea about tri bars. And then I would have like eight sets of tri bars coming to my house and be like, these still don't feel right. Who knew that yeah. this was even a thing? And like you say, there's not a lot of people 
there's loads of people using try bars, obviously, but there's not a lot of people that want to use them for over a hundred days. And, you know, the, um, the same sort of things that are important to them because they can be really uncomfortable for a short amount of time, can't they? But I needed to be, you know, not get any injuries in my shoulders and stuff in my neck. So yeah, everything, like you name a thing on the bike and I can guarantee I spent about two months thinking about what component I would take on it to, and, try, and trying them out. So at first I was giving myself a really hard time about that. Like, I can't believe I've not got my kit sorted, but actually you know, you, you had it sorted for when you were leaving. It's just a really big job to do. <laughs> yeah, I think I think we'll all agree by the end of this that you were definitely the most specialised bit of kit there, you know, on your own, unsupported. Now, let's ignore all the weight of the kit that you've got. What makes cycling unsupported so difficult? Oh, man, well, you say difficult. I would say special. You know, taking on a journey like that, and you're completely on your own. You're so, you know, you're so reliant on yourself that you're pushing yourself to these extreme limits, but equally you've got nobody else to fall back on. So you have to keep enough in the tank to be able to get get to bed that night, eat, and then get back on the road the next day. And there's, yeah, there's something that I love about that. It's so simplistic and and there's quite a fine art. Nobody's telling you you've gone too far. Nobody's telling you you've not gone far enough. And nobody's telling you to get up in the morning. You know, you're just relying on yourself to do it. And it's that utter commitment um, that, yeah, yeah, I really like it. And also, I mean, you know, you're not the best company when you're riding, <laughs> for 13 14 hours a day oh man you can get so grumpy not the and best I often smelling thought, company <laughs> <laughs> yeah not the best company at all um so yeah there's there's something quite nice about just being you know you're just in your own head and you're in in, in your in your own place and you allow this sort of emotions to come and go and you're and you're very aware of them um, and mm. you get this space that you just don't get in everyday life you know you, you you've got work to deal with you've got family you've got friends like you've got all these sort of pressures that you have to be Jenny or you have to be Rob and you know you ha- almost have to put a bit of a front on just to get by day by day and when you're out on the road there is there's none of that like you are just a hundred percent yourself and you're so aware of it you're like oh look I'm really grumpy right now why am I grumpy and and like you're yeah you just sort of work your way through it I find it fascinating yeah there'd often be no reason for you to be grumpy I'd find as well like you'd, you'd have a sunny day you'd eaten really well and you weren't tired but you'd be in an absolute stinker of a mood and then the next yeah. day it's chucking it down with rain you're freezing cold and you're singing along to some Bruce Springsteen you know and you just go how did I get here <laughs> that's so funny mine was meatloaf <laughs> myself meatloaf. on that day is like belting out le- uh, meatloaf going along the road but it's so true it's never the days that you're like oh no wonder you know this is tough like look this has been raining for 15 hours no wonder you're grumpy because you almost dig into resilience that is like yep this is tough and this is what I have to do to get through it but on on the day-to-day grind 
when there's no challenge maybe or when there's nothing to like get your teeth into it's just sort of riding along a little bit windy but nothing to moan about <laughs> you know tarmac's not great then it's that it's it, it's the mundane bit isn't it that can put you in a bit of a exactly sometimes mm-hmm. you've just got to be your own tough boss and don't let yourself get away with any cheap excuses that's why yeah or i would i would well, dare myself do you ever do this do so if i do was, what? like just to be emotional you know if i would be like oh like you know this is really hard and i'm like oh what are you going to do cry and i'd be like to myself <laughs> this is all talks to myself i realize this sounds a bit bonkers now but then i'd be like oh what are you going to do cry and i'd be like well maybe and then i'd have a little cry and then i'd be like oh well <laughs> that's that well, the first day at work, shall we call it, was at the Brandenburg Gate in Berlin. Now, can you just set that scene for us? Like, what could you see and hear? You know, like, we, you must have been on like, literally like a caged animal ready to go. I don't know if I, I, I was dying to go. I was dying to get going. So 6am I was setting off and there was like a handful of people there. None of my family came out to, for the set off because just, we decided it'd be easier if, if I was just sort of on my own almost. There was um, Tom and Mike, my two friends who were filming and like gathering, um, yeah, gathering, gathering footage out there. So they were with me, but I'd gone through this Oh man, I just left one of these jobs. You know what it's like before the big expat? You have got the long, I don't know if you're like this, I'm like this. I've always got the longest list of, to do. And it seems to get longer as I get closer to the start line. And so I'm out in Berlin with all these like still to do things. And I went to my bed with six hours to go um, before I was setting off around the world and looked up at my, uh, my bike that was all set up, looked at my Garmin and I was like, I've not got any roots on my Garmin. Like I've not, <laughs> I've barely used the Garmin before and I don't know how to get out of, the, out, of um, out of Germany, like out of Berlin. And so then I had really bad Wi-Fi in the flat that I was staying in and I was panicking. I was like on panic mode, got the lads up. We spent like an hour and a half and I got half the world on a memory card in my, in my um, <laughs> thingy. And it was like, what? are you doing Jenny? And it was like the simplest task that I kept thinking, I'll do that when I sit down. I'll do that when I sit down. That's a sit down airport job. Or, you know, like I was giving all, all the jobs on the to-do list, sort of a hierarchy of could I do, did they need to be done now or could I be resting when I was doing them? Um, and so it just, yeah, I've, I set off, I got up that morning and I found it really difficult. I was feeling like such a loser. It's like, how are you going to get round the world when you don't even know your way <laughs> I got lost on my run within the first three miles, so don't don't beat yourself up about it. Yeah, yeah, I ended up in the wrong part of town in Mobile, but I got away with it. And as an example of to-do list, (laughs) it's actually my wedding anniversary this weekend, and my first one as well. So happy anniversary, Nadine! And um, (laughs) ten minutes before my wedding, I was still running round, didn't have my suit on. I just had a Nick Cave t-shirt on, and like my best man said to me, "I think you'd best get dressed, dude." And so (laughs) I identify with that. I think all best laid plans begin that way. And you have half the world on a memory card, so you're fine. Those first few days, what were they like? 
Oh man, when I let, see when I cycled across that imaginary line, you know, there's that handful of people there. I did a bit of an about turn. I cycled past them and I have never felt a feeling like it. It was all that stress and worry and like doubting myself the whole, on the whole lead up to it. It just came from my toes and like shot right up through my body and I could feel it almost exploding out of my head, the relief. I was like, yes, I am off. And I just had that feeling of like, this is the bit I love. This is the bit, this is worth it now. All that stuff is in the past. And of course, I still had a mega to-do list, but it was like, how much of it's important <laughs> at this point? Um, yeah, so it, it was insane. It was such a relief to be riding. And then the first the first day, the boys were in the car, sort of like getting, like filming me along, along the route for the first um, 15 hours. And then they headed off and then I was really on my own. And I headed, you know, I, I sort of got through and I was ticking off countries quite quickly because, because of the nature of Europe. So I got into Russia within the week and then Russia. Yeah, that's that's a big place. Like you're there for a long, long time. <laughs> and I think getting into Russia, you have that sort of, you know, you're being stimulated because you're ticking off all these borders and 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 stuff but once I was in Russia yeah I definitely felt I felt the weight of it and almost felt the that feeling of like oh right it's this every day like like I don't know what I was expecting yeah. just like you, you know by the end of the first week I was like oh it's this is actually it. This is what I've got to do for the foreseeable, this riding. Um, and you have all the niggles, you know, didn't quite get my saddle sorted, obviously. And um, just like, a few things that were sort of niggling on me. And you've got the weight of the, you know, the weight of the exped on you. So apart from uh, this relief that you're actually on the road, a week in, then you're like, am I doing this right? I'm not very sure if I'm doing this right. You know, I don't know um, because I didn't have any big plans because I figured I would try and stay on the bike for 15 hours a day. I, I didn't end up doing that the whole way around. It ended up being like 13 and a half. Um, but I, definitely in the first part of it, I was managing it, no bother. And so that was my only goal. So I never had anywhere that I was heading to. I didn't know. Are you, were you the same or did you did you know that you were heading to different places? Yeah, I, I, I would sort of set some, I would set my rough days. Like I was slightly smaller range than you, but I never did anything mm. beyond three days because you could, you know, it's, it's not necessarily the distance, you know, you might be able to cover, you know, 20 miles in an hour. I was covering six, but if you're suddenly six hours out, you can't really say, Hey, I'm going to be here and book a hotel, you know? So it, it is last mm. minute, isn't it? Yeah. So last minute. And I like that about it. You know, I like sort of deciding by lunchtime where I'm going to try and end up that night. Um, yeah. But yeah, it did. It did. Um, I could see mm. within a week of being there, I'd be like, oh, it might have been quite nice to have a wee plan. <laughs> like, or to have a, so, you know, a sort of day-to-day -day plan. How did you find yourself as a citizen on the highways of the world? I, I always found it quite scary. And I was running towards traffic being a pedestrian. But I'd see transcontinental cyclists, you know, so they wouldn't be going at your click, but then you'd see a huge Arctic lorry come up behind them and you'd say a prayer for us as it went past, you know. How did you find mm -hmm. that? 
are <clears throat> really difficult and especially I thought I was prepared for it I thought and uh, I thought that I'd you know done enough riding abroad and at home on big busy roads and you have a nice big hard shoulder and I can deal with the that like that it's not the nicest road to be on but actually I felt I would feel safe but Russia is just a different ball game altogether you know once you get east of Moscow and you're on the Trans-Siberian Highway there is like there's death everywhere they've got like um they've got shrines of you know of, of people who have died every like yeah. less than a kilometer on some roads um you're watching lorries tipping over in front of you nobody like n- you know you're clinging on to this tiny little bit of road sometimes the hard shoulder is only the length of like the width of your shoulders so you, you have got no room for error and then these massive trucks are coming like 20 at a time and just yeah like they're they're not expecting you if anything i felt really really stupid for being there it's like this, I didn't, I should not be on this road. And I had a few, I had way more than a few. I had like a silly amount of, of close calls that I was like, I've actually just had more close calls on this road on these last two days than I've had in my whole cycling career. You know, I've just had them, like I'm having them every hour. And um, so I had a bit, yeah, I had a bit of a moment where I, I was exhausted with it. Just, I was getting off the road every hour just to drink water and just to like calm my head, you know, so my head could switch off from it because I was so gripped when I was on it. And then I was like, yeah. I just can't, I'm just not willing to do this. Like, why are you doing this? I got a really lovely message from my son at the time as well. And oh, he doesn't, he, he was 18 and he messaged something, you know, and he would have no idea what was going on. I protect, like protected everyone as much as I could back home of, of anything. And, uh, but he just messaged saying, Hey mom, why, what, why why are you going so fast? It's not a race, you know? And then like put all these tortoises, emojis and uh, slow down. <laughs> he was just sort of, it just clicked to me. It's like, what are, he's so right. What are you doing? And um, so I got, got off the road, had a wee moment to myself and then decided that I would start riding through the night. And if when I rode through the night, obviously I'm lit up, the road's much quieter and I can see Russia. Finally, I could see, I could lift my head up and it was beautiful because it was midsummer. It wasn't that dark either. So I'd have lights on so people could see me, but I didn't really need them to see. And so, yeah, it just ended up being a really cool experience. And then like obviously every morning I would watch the sun coming up because I'm riding east. And by this point, I'd be riding for like 12 hours or something. Something, you know, if by sort of four in the morning, half four, and the sun would start coming up, I'd be like, oh man, is that a fire? Jeez, the trees are on fire. And like every single morning, it's like, no, it's the sun again. <laughs> the sun's coming up. It's such, so it's, nice it's such like a that. mysterious land, isn't it? Like nobody yeah, knows really anything is. about Sabir apart from the fact that it's meant to be really cold, but that must have been incredible. Can you just take us through what it's like being there? Oh man, the people. It's like, it's a different world. You know, I don't, I was only on the road for like two weeks. I left from the middle of Europe, you know, like Berlin, how it's so easy to get to Berlin, wherever you live, isn't it? And I just cycled for two weeks and ended up in this magical place. I was finding it so difficult to make any progress because the people were fascinating and uh, the way, like the way of life and 
I mean, I was meeting people, I was meeting kids and I'd be showing them on the map, you know, I'm from Scotland. So, cause they were like, they, you know, they don't, didn't see a lot of people riding through their town, let alone a woman. And so after they stopped laughing at me, they would, I would get the map out and show them on my phone, you know, from Scotland. And they're all like, Scotland? Like never heard of it, <laughs> never even seen it on a map. And I was like, wow, we get so wrapped up in our self-importance and, you know, this, it, like this Western world. And there's people two Scotland's weeks along the road important. that don't even know we exist it was it was a pretty yeah it was a pretty good life lesson like very early on to um yeah yeah just just to the sort of just to get things in perspective like this is a bike ride you know go have fun it's a lot more remote than i was used to was it? People often thought I was in Downton Abbey when I was in the Midwest. You know, that, that was their vision of uh, of the UK. Well, like, you're in the middle of nowhere. One of the things that, you know, I want to ask, and the questions keep coming in, by the way, guys, keep asking them on social, Facebook and mm-hmm. Twitter, is where did you stay? You know, th- there weren't many hotels in this area, I'm pretty sure. No. Well, it was a, fu- a funny time, actually. So I say I, I had a, a t- f- to get the trip off the ground, I guesstimated it would be cost about 15 grand for everything for flights for, I had four flights and uh, for if, to be able to stop and eat anywhere I wanted you know because I had to get so many calories in and um, to be able to fix my bike and to be able to stay inside one night out of three so I thought I could, I've got a bivy bag I'll be able just to bivy anywhere and then if I stop in a town and I can get somewhere to stay then that'll give me enough to recharge my body wash because I was minging all the time and to like be you know plug in all my lights and stuff and so it kind of worked out so that was 81 nights that I bivvied out and then for that would be so like 40 Vivian? odd nights. Just explain that for some of us who aren't as hardcore adventuring as you. <laughs> I'm not sure I'd recommend it if you're going around the world. <laughs> Take a tent. Um, so a bivy is basically it's a waterproof sleeping bag. No it's a waterproof sleeping bag cover so it goes you put your sleeping bag and your roll mat and then you climb inside it and it just keeps um it keeps the rain off or keeps the weather off um this was a really lightweight one I had and I made that decision because it was all about like what was going to get me out of bed in the morning if it was raining and you're in a tent, it is so difficult to mentally unzip that tent when you're exhausted and climb out of it. If you're in a bivy bag and it's raining, the very first thing you want to do is climb out of it and find some coffee. And so it was all these like little tricks I could play on myself to see like keep me going, what would keep me going. So that was that's why I chose a bivy bag. And actually it ended up being really good because then I didn't need to find somewhere to camp in the dark. I could just crawl in. In, you know crawl in and lie down somewhere I didn't need an actual camp spot um, so yeah so I stayed in a lot of like going across uh, going across Siberia and into Mongolia but every continent was different where where I'd stay so I slept in a lot of pipes underneath the road so they'd have these uh, big huge pipes for cattle sometimes I thought they were for cattle sometimes I wondered if they were drainage for the winter and <clears throat> so you could get under them because it was summer and it was dry most of them most of them were really nice like 
really nice to be in. They felt quite cozy. You were out of the way. And uh, yeah, you could just like sleep underneath the road and, and then get going in the morning. But there was a surprisingly, um, there was a surprising amount of accommodation out there, especially on the Trans-Siberian Highway, because this highway has got such a life. You know, there's truckers traveling from China right across through Mongolia and into um, Russia so many of them every day so every for a for a good couple of weeks every 20 miles there would be 24 hour food 24 hour accommodation so when I was going from you know when I shifted to night shift for that sort of five day period um then I could sleep through the day in a hotel or or like whatever sort of accommodation they had and which was ideal because you just wouldn't have wanted to sleep outside there was nowhere to hide, you know, people are busy doing stuff, working in the fields and, you know, really inquisitive. So you wouldn't have felt like you could just sort of bunk down. So through Siberia into Mongolia yeah. and China, you know, what were they oh, like? You man. say every continent was different. I can, I can picture a lot of it in my mind, but I just want to, I want to see your perspective from the road. Oh my goodness. I mean, I always, Mongolia was, was the place I was most looking forward to going. So we'd have had to do something really drastic for it not to be a magical place for me. Do you know, I just had the image of the culture and the people and the, like the landscape and it lived up, it, like it lived up to my expectation. There was just, people were warm, they were curious and their way of life, you know, it was just a different pace altogether. I mean, I was welcomed in like just a as I crossed over the border, there was a cowboy herding up all his horses, you know, like rocking about on the horse. And um, and like this wee boy had just, uh, this little boy had come out of the shop with a loaf and then just jumped onto his horse and like galloped off. And I was like, yes, I love this place. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it was, it was pretty special. And then coming into China, you know, I honestly like that. I was I was heading for that was the end of the first leg. It was sort of I think it was about five weeks, five and a half weeks, and to to get from Berlin to Beijing, or just outside Beijing. So that was big. That was a big time buzz because I was going to make it to the plane. I was actually going to finish the first leg. That was you know any time I started thinking and planning. Anytime I started thinking like in the in the planning for it and I would think about, you know, um, getting to Australia, I'd be like, just hang on a minute, Jane. Let's just get to Beijing first. So then when I did it, I was like, wow. Yeah, Jane, I'm not letting you get away with that. I, I can't let you get that. You just casually said five weeks Berlin to Beijing. That is think, unbelievable. <laughs> I think it was five You had a You had a long flight coming up. You were on your way to Australia next? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was on the way to Australia. And oh man, I was so looking forward to that flight. Um, I, I, it's worth saying, like every single airport I went to go to, I was in my head, I was like, I'm going to get there early. I'm going to have the whole day in one of these lounges, you know, like, oh, you can eat lounges. I'm going to have a shower. I'm going to like, oh, it's going to just be lovely. Every single airport, I was like skidding in the door sideways, trying to download visas, like not quite, uh, like throwing all my stuff in a box, in a cardboard box to get to the other side. So they were all fairly stressy and I never managed to have a wash before I got on any plane. So that poor people yeah. sat next to me. 
but yeah, I had, yeah, had a great, I had a great flight. Slept all the way, ate as much as I could, and then arrived in Australia and went straight to a bike shop. So to be self-supported, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't rely on any contacts I had throughout the world. But I could use places that were open to anybody to use. So things like bike shops, uh, post offices, um, uh, warm showers, you know, you know, things that anybody can use. You can use them as well. I just couldn't like phone up my mate Dave. Say, can you come and collect me? Because he wouldn't be available to everyone. So that's what, that's what I did. <laughs> Good old Dave. <laughs> um, I mean, to be fair, Dave would be available to everyone, I'm sure. But um, yeah, so I, I used um, a bike shop. So I went straight there and I got, oh man, just the nicest welcome of, um, in Perth from Glen Cycles and just... I'd sent some clothes out there because now it was winter. I was in Australia and it was winter time. And um, yeah, that was me starting my second leg. So there was th- some things that were great about it. So it was great speaking to people again because I, although I had the most incredible interactions on, on the first leg, very few of them were in English. Um, and so maybe maybe twice a week, if I was really lucky, I'd have a really lovely connection with somebody and, you know, like hold their hand or even get a cuddle and just like feel like I'd connected. And and you so that was that was quite a lot to get used to because I'm used to connecting with people every single day of my life. And it was like, oh, wow. Yeah. Nobody, you know, I, I don't speak. I thought I was going to learn Russian as I was cycling along through Russia. And of course I didn't do that. Um, but I, uh, yeah. So anyway, I got to Australia and now I could connect with people. I could speak to them and it was like, I could go in. I, I ordered like my first flat white and lemon drizzle cake in the airport. And I was like, yes, this is amazing. <laughs> I don't have to eat meat pasties anymore. And, um, um, so that that stuff was really good, but the the magic the magic of Asia had you know was lingering, and now I was in Australia. I was just another rider that was riding across the Nullarbor to a lot of people, and it was midwinter, and it was Baltic, like freezing cold. It was dark at four o'clock um, or five o'clock, and it was just like whew, it took a lot to get my head into. It took a lot. I felt really flat for the first few yeah. days in Australia, uh, despite thinking that this was going to be easier. Yeah, it would be easier because there's not all these unknowns and language barriers. And, um, you know, I sort of recognise quite a lot of things. But actually, I just loved Asia so much and w- was really get- getting into it. And I was full Gore-Tex head to toe <laughs> yeah. for the foreseeable. I'll, I'll... Australia is one of my old stomping grounds and one of the things I really loved when I was there was the wildlife, you know, sort of a, you must have been looking forward to cuddling a kangaroo or something. Oh my goodness. I was so scared of the kangaroos, Rob. Where in Australia were you? I was, I was in Melbourne, but I traveled fairly wildly, you know, so just just going around cuddling koalas and avoiding huntsman spiders and tiger snakes, you know. I spent so much of the preparation terrified that I would meet a snake, that I'd be like Googling snakes in Australia and then not being able to Don't look at Google, having to get like my 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 friends to write down uh, snakes. Will they kill me? Yes. No. <laughs> Tick box. <Yeah>. What colour are they? <laughs> no face looking at them. But because it was midwinter, it was like minus three quite a lot of the quite a lot wow. of the night. So they'd have to be desperate to be out there. And um, so yeah, I didn't I didn't have any snakes or spiders. 
But the kangaroos freaked me right out. They're gigantic. <laughs> are they? I don't know if they I like mean, cyclists or not, but you were on, you said you're on the Nullarbor. You, you certainly weren't any other cyclist doing it, but just like any other cyclist who does it, you have to cope with a 90-mile straight, as I can see, stretch. How was that psychologically? I loved it. I loved it for the first 45 miles. <laughs> and then I was like, all right. This is just going to be straight for the same again. So I got to the sign. I'd been so looking forward to getting to the sign, you know, and like got the picture, did a wee video home and was like, sun was going down. So it was beautiful light. And I thought I knew there was a road house, 24 hour road house at the other end. So I was like, great, I'll just smash this out and and get accommodation for the night. And it, it was actually really it, there was something about it that was really nice because it was in the dark, but there was a beautiful sky. It was really clear. So I had silhouettes all the way along, like, you know, of, of the bush. And um, I, I could see a lot despite it being dark. But I was playing this game where I would see lorry lights coming towards me. And I'd start, like, look at my clock and be like, right, I, I wonder how long that's going to take to get past me. And it would take, like, 28, 29 minutes to reach you from wow. the time that you'd started to see them. So it's seriously, yeah, seriously, seriously straight. But yeah, it's that thing, isn't it? I quite often get halfway through something and then I'm like, oh, right, okay, now I get it. This is just 90 miles of an actual straight road. But yeah, luckily I was yeah, 45 <laughs> miles in before I Please realized. stick around for the rest of the podcast. Don't go anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> you, you got all the way across Australia, avoiding the known deadly wildlife and bizarrely the kangaroos yeah. you got across yeah. europe and asia avoided the traffic and food poisoning and all crazy sorts of shenanigans but one of your first major hurdles happened in new zealand and you, you got pretty sick right so unexpected of all the places that you're going to get sick on that trip new zealand has got to like mm. wasn't on my radar you know it was just over a thousand miles i had a ferry crossing in the middle of it and um, it was a bit punchy at the beginning but i was like this is like this is going to be fine i can like rattle this off in you know a few days and i got i got through the first half so the south island in pretty good time um Again, though it was like it, it was winter and I was over halfway around the world by then. So I was I was feeling it. I was feeling really fatigued. And then so I was fairly worn down. And then I must have been on the South Island. I got accommodation and there was this unbelievably cute kid, little red haired kid. They'd been from Scotland like a few generations back. And he was like climbing all over me. And it was like so cute, a little bit snotty, but cute. And his mum was like, and he was all over the bike. And then his mum really casually said how strange that he's okay because he just spent like all night being really sick. <laughs> and no. I was like, oh no. Because <laughs> you know what it's like? You turn into I know, I know, I know, and I'd spent so long trying to avoid it, and I just wasn't at my strongest, obviously. And but I let, I just sort of thought, oh, nothing of it, and felt fine getting to the ferry. It was the first day on the North Island, and literally just riding along the road, I was like, started feeling my head going, whoa, and I was like, oh, am I going to be sick or like, what's happening here? And I just had eaten. They've got such good pies out in New Zealand, like really nice and um, mince and tarty pies, and like really good bakery. So I was always stuffing my face, and I was like, you've gone too far, haven't you? <laughs> you've gone too far with that pie. <laughs> and uh, but actually, yeah, it wasn't 
wasn't that. It was, I was coming down with this bug. So I got, yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't the end of the world. It was just a sickness bug. But when you're on a, you know, desperate time scale to try and make the ferry and like you're lying in this bed, I was lying there and I was so pathetic. It was unbelievable. I felt like if I had a shower, it might rip my skin open. Do you know when you're feeling that yeah. fragile? Mm. And I was trying to get, I had antibiotics in my bike and I was trying to open the dry bag to get into them. And I couldn't, like at my fingers, I just had no... No strength from this. <laughs> just lying there, like, oh man, and just waiting for it, like waiting for it to go. Moved my, moved my plane forward today, and and then as soon as I felt like I could have a shower, I thought that was a good enough sign that my skin wouldn't rip open. I could probably get back on my bike. But as soon as I got, so I got back on it the next day, but I wasn't riding very well. And there was these um, any lumps on the road or do you know when it's um sort of concrete concrete um slabs on the road and it's got like a little bit of a dip then I'd have to hold my head when I was going over them because of like my brain was shaking about inside it pathetic I was <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't think you, you can say you're pathetic when you've gone halfway around the world and you know not long before that you were in one of your favorite places another airport flying this time to Alaska <laughs> Now, this is such a beautiful part of the world. Uh, also with some interesting wildlife. <laughs> I never made it to Alaska on my run, but mm-hmm. I was I was desperate to. Maybe one day, what's your space? But when I was going through Idaho, um, I had a conversation with a chap who asked me if I had a gun or any bear spray to go down this road, which he referred to as the bear superhighway. I replied I had neither. How did you cope with that? Because Alaska's got some big ones, I believe. Oh, wow. I mean, I I have to say, definitely go, Rob. It it was maybe go in winter when when there's no bears about. But, oh, man, it was gorgeous. (laughs) It's really cold, isn't it? Yeah, uh, it was just unbelievable. It was just this, um, it almost had all the magic of Asia, but... But it was different because you could communicate more with people, and but it had that same mm. sort of remote, um, inquisitive people, just really, really warm. I felt I felt very looked after there. Um, but yeah, I was because I'd just come off this like the back of this illness, and I hadn't taken any time to rest. I did this huge flight, and and you know I I wasn't very realistic with maybe how much flights were going to cost, so I couldn't get. Any, I couldn't get a nice seat on the flight, so I didn't have any race. So I ended up, and this is all just in, in hindsight that I know this at the time, I had no idea. And um, but I ended up in Alaska in such a mess, like emotionally and um and mentally, like I just had I had nothing in the tank. I, I remember riding along thinking this is it. I am never going to feel okay ever again. I was so tired. And so the bear thing really started getting to me. Um, I saw my first bear when on like day two and I, and you know, I had some bear spray and I had a couple of bells on, but actually there's a difference in having some bear spray on your bike and having some bells on and then seeing a bear and knowing yeah. that you have to keep riding for like another four hours that night. And there's now, now it's a real thing. Now it's not this, just this thing that, you know, some people see when they come to Alaska. So, um, and that continued. So I saw like three bears in the space of a, a week and, I and I was riding a lot at night and I it was just 
Yeah, I just, I think I just let things get out of control a little bit because Mm. I was so petrified and obviously scares are, like bears are scary. You should, you know, you shouldn't like take it for granted, but actually they're not just going to pounce out on you and rarely. And when you're riding along the road, like they didn't want to see me. They just wanted to munch on their berries and, you know, like it, it wasn't, it it probably wasn't as bad as it felt like it was, but for me, it was quite a big hurdle to get over just to keep up. Yeah, to you keep never on the see bike, a mountain so. line until it's got you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you do see well, like, bears, the, the, though, the, don't the, you, until they get you? Honestly, like, sort of, even just talking about them now, I can feel my rested heart rate going up, you know, sort of, I was really? basically talking the lyrics to get back by the Beatles in a in a really loud voice and I just hope somebody was in the woods just hearing this craziness and that, that was one of my mental tricks to survive you know I had physical fatigue you know you've got all these variables that you can't control and you've also got some pretty nasty weather now what mental tricks did you play to get yourself through these things because I'm not being funny 95% of people would stop you're obviously special you might be superhuman. Tell us how you get through. I don't think so. I think I'm really stubborn. <laughs> really, really stubborn. Yeah. And I really wanted it. You know, I, well, that's the thing. Like I would have, I've quit bike races because I've not wanted to do them that much. And, and I've been in great shape and I've been, everything's ran well. And I'm like, do you know what? My heart's just not in this. So I think a lot of it's to do with that, um, like passion for the actual goal. Like your why is big enough, isn't it? If your why is big enough, then mm. you'll get, you'll get through that. Um, so the, but yeah, to, to keep me going. So for bears specifically, I stopped asking men in tartan shirts if they'd ever seen a grizzly bear out here before. <laughs> Because they all had a, a horrendous story. So I was like, you're not allowed to ask anyone else. And then I would find my mouth going, hey, have you seen any grizzly bears? And so like I had to stop that. I wouldn't be allowed to. Um, so I couldn't stop. I, I, this was this was a key like to keep me going. So I could not stop for dinner if it meant that I was going to leave the nice, safe cafe or restaurant as it was yeah. getting dark. So I could stop through the day if I wanted, but as soon as that dusk time, I had to be on the road because fit, like mentally leaving a safe place and going out into this like dark wilderness um, was just such a mi- mental mind game. It would wear you down. So I would do different things like that just to be like, oh, I don't have to make that decision because I'm not putting myself into, you know, I'm not stopping. <laughs> I'll just keep going. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'd find like all these trucker toilets to lock my myself in at night time hide my bike away from me and like just like as if this tiny little door is going to keep the grizzly bear away but mentally it was enough for me like it was fine um but i listened like you say luckily there was still on the berries yeah but you (laughs) get through the bears you get through the weather you get through the whole of like alaska and canada so you get to your safe place which is europe you know that's not very Mm -hmm. far to go but wasn't it true that you had your biggest meltdown pretty much like less than 500 miles or so from the finish? 
Absolutely. Isn't it funny? You're on the home straight, aren't you? You've got through it all. You're back. I didn't even, I barely planned for that, for that point. You know, I planned my flight, but I was like, oh yeah, like I'll just nip up through Europe. I've been there so often. My family were all starting to arrive in Berlin. I had, you know, more people were coming out to meet me and um, it was just all more familiar. And everyone was like, nearly there. You're so nearly there. And I'm like, I'm still 2,000 miles away. <laughs> like 2,000 miles is so long. It's such a long way. And, uh, and once I started seeing, like people would come, come and meet me. And once I started seeing how fresh they were, it was a real shock to like what a wreck of a person I was by that point. And it was, it was really bad having that comparison sometimes because you like watch people nip off up the hill. Like, oh no. Um, so yeah, but I think that, that home straight, I had a real, I had a real, um, like I said to you at the beginning that I wanted to do it 110 days and throughout. So I was me, I, I managed to stay like every single day I had really positive thoughts, at least at one point of the day, you know, some days were dark, some days were really hard, but every day I had this like feeling of gratitude and like, there's nowhere else I'd want to be. And I never felt like I wanted to quit or anything like that. Like that was never on the cards, but my, my demons out there were this 110 day target that I'd set myself. So, because then I was coming in in 124 days and I was like still breaking the record by three weeks or something, just under three weeks. But it was all I could think about on my when I was really tired was what a loser I was for not doing it in 110 days. And my poor sister would get me on the phone sometimes. Like she was sometimes only the only one brave enough to call. And she like, and I'd be like, oh, you know, like she's like, you're doing so well. And I'd be like, no, I'm not. I'm two weeks late. What are you talking <laughs> about? And yeah. And so then I had this like huge meltdown. Um, well, not huge meltdown. I just cried a lot. Like I sobbed. It was morning time and I was just, um, um, my, my friend was along like we were just coming into France or something, but we were sleeping in different places and I was still like hanging on to this solo self-supported. So she could only be about so often, you know, like from limited time. Yeah. And so uh, this morning she was like, oh, hey, I think we're in the same place. So I like, come and meet you. And I was like, no, because I didn't want her to give me a cuddle. I didn't want to be emotionally yeah. supported by her. And then we ended up like <laughs> meeting at the same traffic lights by accident. And yeah, I just had this, like she just, and she, I wouldn't let her cuddle me you know I was just like you can't I just I just feeling so bad but you can't hug me and I have to go now what a shame it must have been so hard for her and um, but it was that well, thing you could, say, so you could save the cuddles for the end couldn't you you could save the yes. cuddles for the end because the Brandenburg site was a gate was in sight again what was it like just give us a little snippet of that finish so I'd been going for 36 hours by the time I got into the Brandenburg gates. I had gone like gone through this hilarious night of um like hysterical laughing, sort of like falling off our bikes and just being like a uh, little like photographers coming along because you're this professional 
professional cyclist that's just ridden around the world and you're like you and your mate are falling off your bikes and like can't get on them because you're laughing so much so there was this like really bizarre mindset that I was in and then I, I it hit me like I had a mile to go I was riding up towards the Brandenburg gates and I was starting like oh my goodness like my family are there you know my son's there my mum's there like everyone was out my some friends had come out and um and then I came under the gates and they were all standing at the other side and it was lovely I could just hear this the cheer and it was cool but I looked over at them and I was like they all look like cardboard like they weren't <laughs> real you know all these people that I was like dying to touch and hug and I was home and I was like it was like a wall of cardboard people that were that were sort of waving their flags and being really excited but I was just so detached it was it was bonkers yeah, yeah it was like looking down on it that's like a new meaning to the words yeah, that's Sorry. a new meaning to it's delirious with excitement, you know. So I, th- I think I'm pretty delirious. I've been I've been smiling since the second you started talking because this story <laughs> I just absolutely love it. And from what I've heard on social, everybody else is loving it as well. My phone's oh, been going nice. crazy with questions, and so I'm pretty sure they're not going to be as difficult as rounding around the world. Do you mind if we ask you a couple? No, I'd love to. It's my favourite subject. Superb. Well, this one is, which other adventure or endurance athletes do you respect the most? Oh, wow. That's such a good question. Oh, man. So um, I think the very, very first person that I ever, like, that, that was, became my mentor and later became my friend and is now my best adventure buddy and work colleague is Lee Craigie. So she was the first woman um, athlete that I knew that was doing it professionally, that was living in Highland and just really watching her journey and 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 sort of being part of her life with you know when you're around somebody who's not accepting boundaries and barriers and it's so inspiring to be around it gives you strength because you're like well I don't need to accept them either and it's you know I think um I think real people that I've met give me give me that sort of um yeah courage I mean look at what Leo Wilcox is doing like all these all these um female endurance like runners like Anna McNuff I absolutely love Anna McNuff and I know you did a podcast with her um yeah. and Jasmine Paris like when I watch you know when I watch what um what she's just done and it's just, yeah, I, I love, I, I particularly love um, people that, that I've met, obviously. I don't mean it like that, but, mm. you know, when I, um, real people. So, like, that, they're, they're yeah, the well, inspiration. They will make it seem but, so real, apart from Anna, who's crazy. But, you know, <laughs> you know, they're all such a normal, you know, with their outlook, just like yourself. And, you know, I, I like to hope that I'm like that, but uh, I just I just think that you guys, it's, yeah. it's just unbelievable. I love being a part Rob, of all this craziness. I should have said so... you first. I'm so sorry. Rob, no, no, Rob not me. Mine. Not me. People have, people have heard enough about me already. Me, me, me. None of that. You know, if this is about you and everybody else. And so let's talk about somebody else as well, because someone's asked, which one person, if you had to have going with you on the ride, who would it be? And it can be family, it can be someone from endurance world, or maybe even just somebody to make you laugh. Oh, wow. Oh, that's such a good question. I've never been asked that. I mean, I don't think anyone would have wanted to come with me. Uh, I was <laughs> 
smelly and grumpy. Um, who would I choose? I I might choose someone that could sing and um, yeah. and yeah, keep it keep us going. Meatloaf. I listen to a lot of maybe not meatloaf. That's like a guilty fit pleasure. <laughs> Um, yeah, I listened to I listened to a lot of Frank Turner when I was out there. So maybe if Frank could be Great like choice. on my tandem and he could be like ding 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 behind me and like singing me songs. <laughs> That's not how he plays guitar, by the way. <laughs> well, we'll make it happen. Are you planning on, on turning up to any ultra races next year that we could get Frank to go to? You know, maybe like the North Cape or something. <gasps> yeah, yeah. Like I would, um, I'm planning maybe to do this. Tra- time lapse has been on it's been on the cards time lapse for a couple of years i managed to get out of it this year but i've got friends at gcn <laughs> who have got a female team in so go them freya and the girls are racing their way down that today oh, one, one of the uh the, the hardcore legion who are on the saddle as we speak are, are asking have you got any tips for anybody doing time lapse this year Oh, wow. Okay, so I feel like a bit of a hypocrite because I'm so not doing time lapse this year. But things that keep me going through, like through, you know, I have done 24 hour races. My first race was the Straff Puffer mountain bike race. Um, And I think like keeping the mindset, you know, we all know like when the mind, your body, like your body's trained, you don't normally get to the start line if you've, you know, if you've not trained your body. So like keeping in mind just how lucky you are to be there. Like you're in sound body, you're in sound mind, you're on your bike and, you know, you're being part of this thing that is bigger than you. And there's other people out there that, might be putting on a better front than you that are probably hurting as much and you know it's it's probably just as tough for them and just that like keeping a bit of perspective on it and especially for the night riders so especially for the ones that are doing the out of hours that's where I get the most strength from I love riding at that time they're like stolen hours everyone else is in their bed what losers <laughs> you're out there on your bike smashing it out and uh, yeah there's something very very special about that so yeah, just remember, just remember, like that you're part of something cool. When like special events like your ride and time lapse and stuff like that, you know, you had such an epic time, and it was a long time. How did you adjust to normal life? That one comes from Zach Green. <gasps> Zach, I am still adjusting. <laughs> so difficult. Such a good question because, you know, you it's something that you don't put a lot of thought into because I was like yeah yeah I know sort of you know big adventurers or like people that have been on adventures sometimes struggle coming back but that won't be me because I know about it and you know I'm sometimes I'm somehow like going to bypass that but I felt it really difficult to to read like and it's it was connecting with people so everybody wanted you know everybody was around me and full of love and wanted to be there for me but I just spent four months on the road trying to protect the nearest and dearest to me from from the real bad stuff until I'd sorted it out and then I could sort of tell them but I found I, I, I felt quite alone I probably felt yeah I felt quite alone when I came home because of course nobody knows what you've just gone through but every but, but they're trying really hard to so you have to be open to that but you still don't know what it's all about so that first few months were tough they were real tough and um, uh, yeah, I'm probably tougher than than being out on the road because now you were in this 
place that you sh- that is your home and that you should feel you're most sort of grounded and and you don't so and it was winter so I just hunkered down really you know I went back to work and um got a new pair of pajamas and yeah just like spent the winter working not really riding my bike and just like watching loads of films and hanging out with people um that that I missed yeah but it's diff- it was difficult. So you heard it here first. If you're Rob? struggling with just anything, just get yourself a new pair of PJs. <laughs> so James has asked the question that we'll probably all want to know the answer to. What's next for Jenny Graham? What's next? Well, I, like the rest of the world, am just adjusting to this sort of new way of living. So at this at this point, I'd be like, oh, you know, I'm going off on this big adventure. But actually, I'm not planning for big adventures. And um, that's, take, that's taken a bit of adjustment. But I, I within the Adventure Syndicate, which is a company I run with myself and Lee Craigie, and we're, we're looking at adventuring a bit closer to home next year. So we're going to be running some um pack rafting adventures so that's when we can get our get our bikes and boats and mix them up together and go exploring some uh, yeah local rivers and in scotland and making yeah making journeys journeys out of things that are a bit closer to home which is really good for me it's it's challenged me a lot because give like any opportunity i am out here (laughs) But actually having to stop and be like, why are you always wanting to go away? Then it's, yeah, it's been, it's, it's been a good, good process. And yeah, definitely one I can't moan about. So yeah, Adventure Syndicates is, is good. But the, the biggest, the, the biggest challenge is going to be that I've started writing my book, my Around the World book, and it's taken lockdown to make me actually um, get on with it. And so this winter, I am going to try my very best to sit in front of that computer for long enough to get, to get all the words out. And yeah, that's bigger for me. That's a bigger challenge than going riding around the world. Like I love riding, but putting, putting words together that are readable. (laughs) Well, I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you a challenge. You need to finish oh, yeah. this book in 110 days. If it's 124, I'm not buying it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much to Jenny Graham, a bona fide superhuman. I'm sure you'll all agree. And thanks so much to you for listening. Make sure you subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts, and you won't miss out on series two. Yep, that's right, series two which will be dropping in the new year. If you've got any ideas on who you think we should talk to and why for the new series, please get in touch with us on social using the hashtag RedBullHowToBeSuperHuman. See you next time. <laughs>